0: This is a Rogue Media Network podcast.
2: I'm Austin Meek with Waco Business News, and you're listening to Downtown Depot, where we track the ins and outs of Waco Business. My guest today is District 4 City Councilman Darius Ewing. Darius recounts his recent trip to DC to petition Texas legislators, his pet projects like affordable housing that are particularly important to him, and his vision for building what Waco could be. But first, it's The Business Review with C.J. Jackson.
1: Unique perspective. I'm C.J. Jackson, and this is The Business Review. After the U.S. government announced that women would be permitted to work as infantry front linemen, Questions were raised about women's capabilities in battle. Stephanie Kunst, assistant professor of management, conducted a study at Quantico to answer what difference having a token female on a male team made on the team performance. So we had a number of teams, some of them were all
0: men, and some of them had a token female. And they went through a series of different exercises that demanded a certain level of physical ability as well as cognitive ability. So some tasks, the answer to this problem was not obvious. And other activities or other obstacles, the answer was very obvious. And so we looked at how teams performed. First, did they succeed in the task that was presented? And how quickly did they complete the
1: task? Kunst found that when a token female spoke up during highly complex tasks, the team performed better and were able to execute faster versus an all-male team. However, that was not true when the task solution was obvious. The findings of our study suggested
0: that if what you're tackling is complex and difficult and the solution is not obvious, there's a benefit to listening to what she has to say. But if the task is really straightforward, encouragement of, oh, let's go around and listen to everyone's ideas actually hurts the team's performance. And so as a member of a team where you have a token female, it's to recognize the value that they bring from a different perspective and figuring out when is it appropriate to listen.
1: Business Review is a production of Livingston and McKay and the Hand Camera School of Business at Baylor University.
2: The Business Review can be heard Thursdays on Morning Edition and All Things Considered on KWBU Waco Public Radio. I'm now joined in studio by Darius Ewing. Darius is the newly elected city council person for District 4
3: in Waco. Welcome to Downtown Depot. Thank you, Austin. I'm super happy to be here.
2: I'm glad to have you. I'd love to know a little bit about your history in the area and what brought you here.
3: Yeah, so I um, graduated high school from a, a town south of here called Belton, Texas. Um, and then so my junior and senior year of high school I started coming to Baylor football games and that was also right around the time that RG3 won the Heisman. Uh, so chose to attend Baylor University. Uh, and then obviously throughout that time in college you're kind of like looking at, oh, the big city and so you're looking at jobs in New York or Chicago or Austin. And uh, I was really fortunate to have roommates that... Were really plugged in throughout town. And, and one of them, uh, a guy named Evan Aber, he, he ran an initiative called Campus Town Waco that connected people from our colleges, universities, and towns with jobs in Waco to stay here. And uh, current mayor, Dylan Meek, was on his steering committee at that time and needed a job filled at his day job at a real estate firm called Rydell. And uh, so that was the connection there. And I wound up applying for it and, and getting that position there. So that was what prompted me to stay here after Baylor and, and being plugged in with then city councilman uh, Dylan Meek and also uh, doing real estate investment in Waco really helped me to have a fuller perspective of, of what it looked like to, to build here, uh, literally and figuratively. And that uh, led up to 2020 when I applied for the appointment for the district four seat, was appointed and served from June through November of that year
2: so in case listeners don't remember there was essentially a clerical issue where dylan meek who had been city council person was elected mayor but he still lived in district four and so they needed to find a new city council person for district four temporarily while he was serving as mayor
3: a little bit different it it came down to uh the election the, the mayoral election being pushed from may to november
2: it was all COVID stuff. Yes.
3: Yeah, yeah. So it, it pushed the election after he had moved, you know, make, call it, a, you know, a thousand yards outside of the District 4 boundary. Uh, and so they had to find someone to serve in the interim uh, as the District 4 rep uh, until the November election.
2: And they let just about anybody apply for this District 4 position. <laughs> I was one of the people who got to be interviewed by the city council. And, of course, they ended up going with Darius but that was a little bit of a harrowing experience getting on there, and I believe Kyle Deaver was still the mayor at the time. They're he was. firing questions at you: How are you going to solve the affordable housing crisis? Yeah, so I, was like, I don't
3: know. Yeah, yeah. That that process, uh, and, and they just they just did it again uh, for District Four in uh, January when Councilwoman Palmer uh, resigned uh, after serving for a couple of years. And I did not apply for that one, but in talking with people that did and sort of reminiscing on. Uh, the the craziness of applying for a vacancy at the city level it is just like that you're sort of sitting there and having to hold court with five council members that are throwing questions at you and, and you get you know sort of the the predetermined questions uh, maybe a day or so in advance but um, as they are thinking of new questions on the spot and they're asking you and you're just hoping you don't sound dumb the meetings being broadcast to anyone that wants to watch it and uh so yeah it, it is it, you're right to describe it as a harrowing experience So
2: you have been a quote-unquote new city councilman for District 4 twice now. How would you compare this version versus the truncated COVID version?
3: It's night and day. Um, Yeah, being the the new city council person twice for the same district is funny to think about. But obviously, so if you you can remember and think back to June of 2020, uh, that's when I was appointed, and that is, you know, three months, four months after a national state of emergency was uh, declared by the president. And so we were still very much getting our footing and learning how to navigate uh, the world with COVID-19. At that point, we didn't know when it was going to end officially, uh, or even like how to operate in a way where we were slowly opening things back up. So I got sworn in uh, that time in the third floor conference room, not at Bosky Theater. There was like four people in the room. Everyone was masked up. I then left there to go to our city manager's office where I had my first ever city council meeting on Zoom. Um, And that was how it was for the duration of my time. So I think they they opened it back up to, you know, uh, council members being back in Bosky Theater. And I think it was before they let people back in, but that was maybe sometime in 2021. So my entire first stint on city council was essentially like the, the prime of the COVID era, um, no meetings in person, anything like that. I, I, I whittle it down to whenever I lost the election in November of 2020 and was rolling off, I was rolling off at the same time as uh former district three council member, John Kennard in the city It was like, they, they put together these sort of, uh, like memorable packages for your time on council. Not only had John served for like 10 years and I'd served for six months, uh, for nine months, or nine years and six months of John's tenure, it was in person, and mine was entirely virtual, and so the, the package that they had for him was like this three-minute long, really great video of all the things he'd done and places he'd been in photos they had of him, and for me, it was like three in-person photos and like a couple of Zoom screenshots, uh, so even like as they were queuing that up, I was like, no, you don't have to do that. Like I understand I've not really been out anywhere because everything's been closed, so that's the really long way for me to say it's totally different now, so... You know, one, there's a difference between being appointed and being elected. Obviously, when you're appointed, uh, the five, and sometimes depending on when people are departing, six members of council uh, make that decision on who is going to be serving there. Uh, When you're elected, obviously, the community which you're representing uh, elects you to serve there. So there's kind of an ease of transition after an election that doesn't exist with an appointment. You don't have to do as much earning of trust because you hopefully you're doing that on the campaign trail when you're running for the office. Um, so that's like the the first thing that makes it much, much simpler to be elected. And then after that, you know, it's not shut down anymore. Like we're not in the, in the midst of the throes of COVID. And so, you know, within two weeks of being elected, I was able to, to join our Chamber of Commerce for the DC fly-in. So that was an entirely new experience to me traveling with the city because outside of You know, going to from one point in Waco to another in 2020, I'd never traveled with the city of Waco.
2: So I think this was the beginning of June, end of May of the summer of 2023. You and a coterie of other powerful Wacoans went to D.C. to advocate for our town.
3: Yeah. uh, I'm i am uh I hope that uh, when you say other powerful way Coens, you're not including me in the, the powerful list there, but but yeah, we did go. Uh, that was a really awesome experience. Um, essentially you know you you set up time with the Department of Transportation, the Department of Education, um, and then your uh, state senators and your congressman representatives for the district that you fall under. Uh, to meet and make sure that you know things that you have on the docket as priorities as a city for a Waco. A lot of it is economic development, um, housing, uh, transportation needs that are budget items for the folks in DC when they're voting on the giant sort of federal spending. Uh, and you're making sure that you're advocating to get those dollars funneled back to Waco um, for for specific programs. And obviously, the the more promising or uh, more powerful the program outline the easier it is to advocate and say hey this is what we need dollars for and so you know a big thing that that was a priority of mine up there was uh meeting with congressman sessions to discuss funding for the sanger school lot project that grassroots is developing you know everyone has a little back pocket passion project that they they really want to advocate for and they're up there um for instance uh councilwoman bearfield from district one you know we, we had a chance to meet with people from the navy to advocate for uh the Doris Miller STEAM Center, as well as uh, getting a Congressional Medal of Honor awarded to Doris Miller um, for his service there. So uh, it was a really, really awesome experience. You get a chance to interact with a lot of people, and and it gives you a, a, a really great appreciation for the bigger picture of how all of these things get done. What did you learn through that first truncated time
2: on city council where you were appointed that has helped you serve District 4 better now that you've been elected?
3: You know, I think a lot of it comes down to understanding and being able to navigate bureaucracy uh, and, and knowing the ways in which you can do that most efficiently. Uh, having muscle memory of that and even certain terminology and language. Um, so outside of being elected, you know, having the title allows you to create a lot of relationships and get a lot of responses to calls or emails that you otherwise wouldn't probably. And so being able to, to partner with, People at Mission Waco or Grassroots, um, and get a better look and appreciation for what the things that they're working on or working towards as people that are on the ground every day uh, in the heart of Waco. Specifically, both of those organizations being headquartered right in the middle of District Four, um, from a city perspective, and then being able to say, "Hey, I, you know, I know the city's working on this. You guys are working on this. We should come together," um, or "Hey, we can help you out in this way." Uh, and then also, you know, I personally, I, li- I live in Dean Highland and and. It's the site of the Old Hillcrest Hospital, and I know for a fact a lot of the people in the neighborhood want to park there. And so being able to, to meet with people from Baylor Scott & White uh, as well as meet people from the city and have a better understanding of what that land looks like, uh, what it looks like for the city to partner with them in uh, acquiring that land and, and hopefully being able to get it to where we want it to, to be something the neighborhood can benefit from.
2: You're listening to Darius Ewing. Darius is the city council person for District 4 here in Waco. For folks who aren't familiar with the district layouts, who lives in District 4 and what generally are the boundaries?
3: Yeah, District 4 is really cool because it is, uh, it's right in the middle of all the districts, so it, it touches every district as they lie on the outskirts of it. District 4 basically is a, a large chunk of downtown from Franklin to Herring, Uh, along the river and then Franklin to 30th Street up to Waco Drive all the way to Valley Mills which then connects uh, Valley Mills to New Road basically back all the way to Herring and that sort of if you can picture that as a a square if you will and there's some cutouts here and there but right in the middle of the city from the river to Valley Mills New Road Bosque um, where sort of all of those four roads uh, meet with each other is District 4 right in the middle so um a lot of what we call North Waco uh obviously geographically that is not the correct uh determination I feel like if
2: you don't know where something is you just say North Waco and it's probably right
3: yeah, yeah 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 or you know East Waco is technically further north uh if you're going by the the compass there but um so you know North Waco most of the neighborhoods up there you know Dean Highland uh Heart of Texas Neighborhood Association just the the very edge of uh, Mountain View, um, all the way to Sanger Heights, Brook Oaks, um, Downtown Neighborhood Association. Those are going to be the ones that are in District 4 primarily. Um, And sorry if I left one of you guys out. I'm I'm going from the top of my head here. Whereas, you know, to to think about generally where things are in town, uh, District 1 is going to be primarily East Waco down towards uh, McLean Stadium and parts of uh, Baylor adjacent land there. District 2 is going to be the remainder of downtown from Franklin towards I-35 all the way back to, you know, Robinson where we have uh, what's called ETJ or extraterritorial jurisdiction as a city. And then District 3, if you think, you know, uh, Hewitt, Woodway out towards our industrial park uh, starting kind of at that Valley Mills, Waco Drive intersection. And then District 5 in your brain, if you can just think, uh, towards China Spring um And then out towards Woodway as well. So uh, in District 4, right in the middle of that. So if you live in those areas, I hope I hope I did a decent job of explaining what district you're in, if you can picture and prioritize that.
2: What are some things that are on the docket for Waco that you're particularly excited about? Maybe it's a economic development agreement. Maybe it's a park that we're talking about to go where the old Hillcrest Hospital is. I know we're not there yet. Uh, But, of course, you get a vantage point to this stuff before we do. Give us a little bit of inside baseball.
3: Yeah. You know, to start from, like, the most obvious thing um, is the development of the new Foster Pavilion on the riverfront. Um, And that is something that's really great because you can see the advancements made there day over day. Um, There's going to be a really, really awesome – and this sounds not, you know, uh, exciting, but a really great parking garage there – And that, weirdly enough, excites me because, you know, people in Waco, as much as we have plenty of parking, still find a way to say that, you know, hey, we need more parking. Uh, It's also going to look great. Uh, and the Foster Pavilion is going to be amazing. Basketball on the riverfront, as well as you know any sort of events that, that we're looking to host as a city. We have a site downtown now that can hold all those events. It's
2: already made a made a huge impact when you're driving in town and you can see this construction coming up, and you've finally been able to see the frame. You can just imagine the Bears playing there.
3: Yeah, yeah. So so that's like the 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 kind of easy thing to say is that you know it's easy to get excited about that the city's working on and developing towards. But and to give people some perspective. I remember moving to Waco in
2: 2015, and the fall is either the fall of 15 or the fall of 16 is when Waco first entered into a development agreement with Catalyst Partners, Paris Rutherford's group yep. that's developing this. Here we are seven years later, and it's finally starting to take shape. But these public private partnerships take so much effort and time to get across to have something as beautiful as what we're going to have there with the Brazos Riverfront.
3: Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. Um, these things take a lot of time and a lot of a lot of people working all in the same direction, which is not the easiest thing to get done when you have parties with different interests aligned. And, um, I, and I'll say candidly, a problem that we're having right now uh, as a city is there's a lot of riverfront development happening at the same time, and there's only a certain amount of real estate there, which obviously all of that's spoken for as it's being developed, but doing developments of this size takes up a lot of space and so we're having to try and coordinate and schedule uh, construction to happen so that there's enough space for people to put their trailers and put their storage containers and, you know, put their cranes. Because, um, you know, right now, it's if you drive by, if you're driving down University Parks until, well, until, well you can't anymore, uh, you know, you, you notice that there's construction equipment sort of lining the river right there, which – is going to lead to good things you know we're going to be able to look at the river in a couple of years and say wow this is like a big draw for our city a phenomenal asset to have that i'm glad we all developed this but uh we're sort of at the critical mass right now where everyone is starting something or in the middle of something at the same time um so it it, pros and cons for all of these things um but uh, you know as we're talking about things that are on the docket for waco um on July 11th, our city manager is presenting the budget to, to council, and um, you know we have budget and audit meetings throughout this time to review what is being presented before it's formally uh, shown to us. But you know, um, every council member has things that are budget priorities that they submit uh, for the current budget year, um, and mine are, you know, improving our public transportation, making sure that we're prioritizing expanding housing. And the nuance there is obviously, you know, we we have a big gap in affordable housing, but that looks like a lot of different things. And so I I don't want to just harp on, hey, we need to make sure we have more quote unquote affordable housing because that can also scare people off. Uh, But, you know, what that looks like to me is incentivizing developers to build houses that people in Waco can afford to purchase, as well as uh, doing some things like the Waco Housing Authority has done utilizing tax credits to revamp and uh, remodel existing housing uh, developments that service lower-income families.
2: When you're talking about incentivizing developers to make the types of homes that people can afford, to me, you're talking about multifamily. To me, that is, hey, there's not a lot of people who can afford a $600,000 home, but there's four families that can afford a $150,000 home. And if that's a fourplex or a threeplex or a duplex, that enables more people to be homeowners. Do you think that zoning is one of the ways that the city can help incentivize more of this type of development?
3: Yeah, you know, I think in addition to that, when you, when you talk to some folks that are, are working on developing neighborhoods right now, uh, for example, um, I think there is a way to prioritize single family in that, but it, we, the city through funding, whether it's from federal or state or city dollars specifically has to be really intentional about how we incentivize and provide funding to that and honestly put our money where our mouth is. And if, if we want more Wacoans to be homeowners, we have to do what we can to make that possible for them, which is sometimes working with developers to offset some costs so that they can price the home lower. Because you're right, you know, when you think about affordable housing, it is a lot easier to say like, hey, we've got duplexes, fourplexes, like the just the numbers you laid out of X amount for the house. But if we divvy that up, it's a lot easier to get it in. And so for the city, if we're going to prioritize homeownership and single-family homeownership, there just needs to be a more intentional approach to that. To your question specifically about zoning, yes, I think it plays a huge role. Um, And I don't know to what extent, uh, you know, that that you discuss this, but I know that you're very familiar with our city's zoning and, and the way in which it's laid out. And so I think that, you know, we have a really comprehensive Uh, use plan and zoning plan as a city. And I think taking things case by case is the best way to go about that. I I believe that we do that when people apply for zoning changes uh, and having a good understanding of what the community needs are and how, if that space lines up with what those needs are, um, how we can best utilize that to serve the community.
2: I spend a lot of time in downtown and that corridor between four, on Fourth and Fifth Street, and between Waco Drive and Herring, so sort of as you're headed toward the zoo. Yeah, that I feel like every time I drive down that street, I see another new construction project or an adaptive reuse. And I was thinking, gosh, this would be a really nice place to live. It's convenient to the river, into Cameron Park, into downtown. But if I wanted to spend money somewhere, I literally have to get in a car and drive there. It's not particularly safe to be walking down this one-way street where people are cranking 40, 50 miles an hour. To me, that's another part of making a area that's livable for people that can actually become economically resilient, is taking away people's dependence on—in Texas, usually it's their own car. And I think this ties into what you're saying about public transportation, where yeah. if we have a transportation system that allows people to choose— to use the transportation system rather than I'm forced to use the transportation system. Or if there is a transit system that allows people to walk safely to shops that are in their area rather than all the shops being relegated to Valley Mills or downtown, to me, that is what helps create the type of community you're talking about where people really want to be invested and involved. And that's what lures
3: more developers to come in. I agree. Um, You know, I think this goes back to the zoning point because you want to make sure that you are allowing for these things to exist near enough to one another that you can utilize them by walking and, and and not necessarily having to get in your car and drive a mile or two miles. Um, But also you want to, when I talk about public transportation and revitalizing that walking on foot is a form of transportation. And the public use of that is primarily going to be sidewalks and walkable cities and streets. So uh, you know, walking a mile or two sounds horrible in Waco But if you go to a a giant city like Austin or New York or Chicago, you can walk a mile or two and not even realize it because there is commerce happening around you. There's development around you. You're walking by apartments, stores, um, and the infrastructure is laid out to make that walk seem doable.
2: Yeah. The mile doesn't feel that long if there's a Slurpee store in the midway point, right? (laughs) Basically, yeah. If you're just having to walk through single family over and over again, yes, I can see why that would not incentivize anybody to want to get out. But yeah, if you can piece in cool multimodal development, um, I think that that's the the key there.
3: Yeah, and I I want to make it clear. I'm not saying that Waco is these larger cities that I'm talking about or that we're shooting to be that. But I think that we can take models from these cities that have them in place already from an infrastructure standpoint and take those and make that fit to what we are as a city. Um, And so, yeah, I think, you know, We've done a good job of increasing the amount of bike lanes that we have uh, to incentivize people to tra- to travel that way, but I think working really hard to better improve our, our walking infrastructure. So sidewalks, uh, designated walking lanes to and from these areas of town like you're talking about, and specifically 4th and 5th Street. Um, I've got plenty of friends that live over there, and, and yeah, they talk all the time about how I'd love to walk my dogs up and down here, not have to go to Cameron Park to do that, but don't have consistent sidewalks, one way street, tra- traffic's traveling a lot faster over here. And I think you're seeing some of that infrastructure come in as these new developments are popping up over there. You're seeing new sidewalks being built, better protection, curb protection from the street. But yeah, so to, to get from there to downtown, what does that look like? If you're going to walk, ride a bike, take public transit. Um, and so I think doing things to to look at what we have to offer currently and optimize that, for instance, to get on a bus right now, it's going to be you have to pay cash Uh, every time you get on the bus. No one carries cash. And so to increase our choice riders, people that are riding the bus by choice, um, that are doing it on a whim out of convenience, you know, hey, I gotta run down here, but I don't feel like getting in my car. To me, that's like the easiest barrier to eliminate is let's get contactless pay on all of our public transportation. Uh, we saw this a couple years ago when we added Wi-Fi to our buses. Um, so it's things that we can do to increase it incrementally along the way as we're looking for what that end goal is to to have a city that works together and is optimal.
2: We often hear Texans say, don't California my Texas. I often hear Waco and say, don't Austin my Waco. <laughs> I think that might be some people's fear as they hear us talking about bike lanes. Guys, It's these are different things, right? And we have a great cautionary tale in looking at Austin. And we know, hey, what did they get right? What have they gotten wrong? And how can we avoid that in Waco? Wrapping up here, Darius, is there a community either in Texas or across the states that you can see Waco modeling, and you think that with the right type of planning and support, Waco could become?
3: Yeah, you know, I, I'm always hesitant to say you know Waco should do this or that or or, or be modeled after this because I think we offer a lot of really unique and specific things, but. You know, th- there's cities like Chattanooga, Tennessee that are around our size that do a lot of these things from an infrastructure standpoint that do have more walkability, really great public transportation. Um, so I think looking at cities like that uh, as well as um, – uh, say I grew up in the city of St. Louis is a little bit bigger than Waco population-wise. They're just under 300,000, so a little bit over double what we have. Um, but from an infrastructure standpoint, they have the infrastructure of a much larger city. So we can't look at that as a one-to-one, but seeing some of the things that they've done uh, to revitalize their downtown that did become a ghost town for a while. So looking at things that cities are doing, I think we can piece together uh, enough inspiration from, from different cities around the country uh, and around the state of Texas to say, I think we like this from here. We like this from here. We can implement that here and make our city a better place.
2: Darius Ewing is the city council person for District 4 in Waco. Thank you so much for coming on Downtown Depot. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast, man. Thanks again to District 4 City Councilman Darius Ewing and you for tuning in to episode 153 of Downtown Depot here on Waco Public Radio. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram and in between episodes at Waco Business News, and join me back here on the third Friday of July for another conversation with an inspiring small business owner, civic leader, or engaged citizen sparking Waco's revitalization. I'm Austin Meek, and you've been listening to Downtown Depot where we track the ins and outs of Waco business. This has been a Rogue Media Network production.